is Dumb Money Live with Chris Camillo, Dave Hansen, and Jordan McLean, streaming live on YouTube. We are Dumb Money. Hey there, Dave here along with Chris and Jordan. We are Dumb Money. This is Dumb Money Live. Today, something a little bit different. The one and only Jack Schwager is going to be joining us for a live Q&A. Jack, the author of the best-selling Market Wizard book series. You might have heard us mention a few times that Jack picked our very own Chris Camillo to feature in the latest book, Unknown Market Wizards. That was just released last week. And uh, if you have a question for Jack or for Chris, head over to dumbmoney.tv slash Jack, because the last time we did a Q&A, that live chat just moves so fast, there's just no way to keep up. So go to dumbmoney.tv slash Jack, and we will uh, we'll take as many questions as we possibly can. But first, Chris, um, I just have to say, you, <laughs> when you were uh, like chosen for this, can you imagine like when you were 17 years old reading <laughs> the first book that you that you were reading that you would ever be featured in one? No, not even, not even close. Like not even, you mean when I was investing like $50 to a hundred dollars per trade that like in way out of the money options to try to strike it rich on every single trade and like getting just destroyed over and over and over again. No, no. I did think I was going to become like a millionaire on the next trade every single, <laughs> every single time, time and it never worked yeah. out. Well, it, it worked out eventually. <laughs> Persistence paid off. It worked out eventually. It was a lot harder <laughs> than I than I initially thought it would be. My my copy actually um, just came yesterday, so I haven't I haven't finished it, but it is amazing so far. <laughs> but I didn't want to jump yeah. right to your chapter. I wanted to actually read it beginning to end. I know I know you're. Oh, <laughs> that, that, it's a me Dave. It's a meaty book. Like this is no joke. This is not. This is like when I got it in the mail, I was like, dude, this is. <laughs> This is a huge, huge book. Like they don't make books like that anymore. It's no, it's it's actually book. a full size. See, I can't even read books like that anymore. I'm just gonna. I'm. I've got the Kindle version that I'm gonna just power through. Got it's like nice and lightweight. I can just read it anywhere. You know, I probably will yeah. read it that way. But I just wanted to have the physical copy because it will look good on the shelf back there. And you know, oh, that's it's an old timey. It is a good. It's a good looking like, book. The too. things that I have back there, I, you're not going to be able to see it in this shot, but I basically have uh, Chris's first book. Uh, I have the Steve Jobs biography, and then I have a uh, an old book from when, from my Yahoo days called the uh, the Power of Moo, or the Big Moo. Yeah, <laughs> it. We don't. I don't find myself buying a lot of physical books anymore. I'm actually thinking about getting a Kindle for like my next gift for myself or from someone else to ask for like is that crazy having one more device just to read is it worth getting a Kindle no it's just... way better to read on it's softer on your eyes than like staring at a backlit screen i mean they okay. still they do like a slight backlight but it's on that e-paper that's matte it's super nice i love reading on it it doesn't fatigue me like reading so now on when i iPad. travel i'm going to travel with my slim macbook my my ipad pro with magic keyboard my iPhone Pro Max and my Kindle and my iWatch. So I'll have, what is that, yeah. five, six? I'm pretty devices. sure you could just pair down. The only down. problem is you've got to then have the USB 2 charger for the, uh, or the USB mini charger for the, uh, for the Kindle. But the Kindle's really light. Get the cheapest one you can. Don't get, don't get something crazy with the keyboard and all that stuff. Get the paper wide, just the cheap I, one. It's, yeah. it's 
thinnest, smallest one. By the new uh, MacBooks that were just an, or just announced in a few hours ago, and I have no need for it, <laughs> but I still want one because they make the event so uh, amazing. You're gonna uh, yell you know I will. Know you know I will. I know you right. will. <laughs> well, this this is a great episode because like I. I feel like we needed a break. We're just always talking about us, 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 our trades, our trades, our methodology. Um, it'd be cool to have Jack on. Uh, you know, he's, gosh, I mean, he spent 30 plus years interviewing the greatest traders that ever lived. So, and, and I always say, the, I, I, I don't know, recently I was interviewed and I, I said that, you know, Jack is one, his books are, are the reason why I actually started respecting just a handful of other methodologies besides my own. Because I used to think that it was impossible to do anything but or, anything other than the exact thing I did. I don't know what that says about me. That's a terrible thing you're, to think. You're very stubborn, and then maybe? I realized that there are actually, <laughs> well, I don't know. There are other people that have other ways to trade that are equal or even potentially better than what I do, which is, is I don't know. I think that's... It was his books that made me realize that. Because I was like, I just didn't believe in technical trading. But there are good technical trade like there are people that routinely make outsized returns year after year for more than a decade just like us in doing something totally different from us and i think it's cool to open your eyes to that stuff we don't do it very often on this show but today you know we're gonna have jack on and we'll talk about it looks like we have a ton of questions already again dumbmoney.tv slash jack if you want to ask jack a question should we bring him on Let's just, Are we let's ready? Do it. So he's the author of the Market Wizard books, perhaps the most iconic series of finance books ever written. He's interviewed, like like Chris said, he's interviewed all the prominent stock market hedge fund traders. He's written a bunch of books about the markets. His background is actually advising uh, hedge funds and heading up futures research at the big firms. So he knows what separates good traders from the greats. Let's welcome him. Here is Jack Schwager. Did they, everything worked? This is the first time my my system by pushing the button actually worked. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. So good to have you here. Yes. Um, can, can, I'm just going to throw, I want to throw out the first question, like my first question for Jack. And then, Jordan, I want to leave you guys the ability to ask Jack. You know, and, we'll, and then we'll throw it to the Dumb Money community. Jack, you have been, I mean, we've been on a couple uh, co-interview things together since the book came out, but they were more formal than casual. Like, what, tell me, like, how... How has this experience just been different from the last few books that you've written? Obviously, this one's about unknown traders. It's about guys like us, weird YouTube traders or people who trade out of their garage. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely so interesting to me, these random people that you have found all over the place that you pulled into this book. And I know you've been working on this book for years, literally years, trying to find people. And... How has the experience been of the journey of this writing this book, publishing it, and then post-publishing the, the reactions you're getting from the first readers? How has it been different from your previous ones where you're focused on hedge fund guys and institutional traders? Yeah, well, actually, the uh, previous books also, with the exception of the hedge fund market, which is book, um, the other three also had some individuals. So this is not totally unique in focusing on solo traders. Although usually I ended up with most of the traders being, you know, big hedge fund guys and, you know, people like Paul Tudor Jones and Bruce Kovner, you know, well-known, uh, Ray Dalio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the fact that this one just focused only on solo traders is a little bit different, but not as much different as you would, you would think. 
Um, it, you know, and, and as far as the, I guess I'm doing more, I guess the difference is social media. <laughs> so I don't know, if, I don't think I had a Twitter account. The, uh, I didn't have any social, I don't have any social media back in the last book, which was 2012. So this may be the first time that I'm using social media. Uh, I don't recall if I did in 2012. Uh, but this time, like I'm doing a quote a day, that type of stuff, that's different. I'm probably doing more more webinars and interviews than I did for the other books. Uh, I'm doing a lot of them. So, uh, um, but well, we're not... also living in a Zoom generation. So like this, this is a little bit more normal <laughs> than it used to be. I mean, uh, you, when you do a book yeah. tour before, you would probably go and, and sit down with a reporter and now you, you're just on the internet. <laughs> Well, it's some of the early book. You know, I've had some terrible publishers, and I won't name the terrible <laughs> ones. I will say that uh, the one that did this book is just great, Harriman House. Uh, they did a great. You mentioned one of you guys mentioned the designer book. And it's they really did a great job, but they're also doing you know a much better job on the marketing side. But I had I remember going to at a book tour and like be somewhere out in the Midwest and go to a radio station. With like you know a town with 500 people you know they book some really ridiculous stuff so uh, uh so this are, is actually more efficient are sales going going pretty well or is everyone happy with the launch i mean we launched on election day which is unconventional to say the yeah, least course. but i know the big book sales for finance are coming in the next 60 days really but you happy with the way things are starting yeah they, you know this was a, the publishers uk so i don't i don't think they realized that it was november 3rd was, the, it was election day <laughs> <laughs> I could have told him, but yeah, I thought, hey, that's a little quirky. <laughs> so uh, nobody's going to be paying attention to uh, to anything else on the day, right? So now I thought it, I didn't know it was good or bad, but uh, whatever. Maybe if people are so sick of it all, they wanted something else. Um, so the, yeah, the, the book's going well. Um, yeah, you know, just based on where it ranks on on Amazon, the Audible is doing really well. In fact, the Audible book. Briefly, it's still about 300 something, but among all books, but it got into the top 100 Audible books. I mean, across the board, all books. Not Wow, that's awesome. So <laughs> that's great. Congrats. I actually took a screenshot. So, but I don't know what, I think the original Market Wizards, uh, or maybe it's the second one, but one of them, I remember when the, there was a Wall Street Journal, there was some sort of review, uh, which gave it a lot of you know publicity. It could have been a Wall Street Review, I don't know, Wall Street Journal. Um, and so I remember going to Amazon and for a brief second, or maybe a minute, it was ahead of one of the, 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 the going Harry Potter books. So, uh, <laughs> so that's like, a screenshot you want for sure. So yeah. That experience, but they don't last very long. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, you never know the way, the way investing is going. Everyone's getting into investing. So I told you this summer, like Jack, you wrote this book at the perfect time. Like what a. What a perfect year for this book, Unknown Market Wizards, to come out when millions of new people are starting to invest for the first time. And that's what I want to ask about is how did you go about finding the people? Like other books, when, when you're doing known investors, it, it seems like that's a little bit easier because there's like you, there's a list of people that you can weed out and decide who's the, the most interesting for writing a book. When you're going after people like Chris, who nobody's heard of, uh, you know, we didn't even have a YouTube channel. I guess we did have our, our original channel at the time, but we had zero yeah, subscribers. What, what was that process yeah. like to uh, to go through and, and find the interesting stories? So, you know, multiple ways, right? So a couple of traders in the book, 
found me. Uh, and Chris is Chris falls into that category. So Chris, um, I guess you emailed me or something, and you wanted to talk about a project you're thinking of. And uh, you know, I, I was in Boulder. You're you're you know in Texas, Texas Dale. Uh, so you know, not not a long plane ride. So hey, if you want to come, come. You know, and we had lunch and and um, and in talking. I didn't know Chris's background really, but I said, "Hey, you know, uh, you know, I, I think you'd be great for it." But you know, once he told me what he's doing and how how well he had done, and of course, you know, subsequently, like everybody else, Chris, I had Chris send me the statements and, and went through that and confirmed it all. So in in Chris's case and uh, in one other case, traders found me. Then I uh, have this uh, startup, uh, I'm a Volvo fund seeder. And the idea of that is to have a platform for traders to uh, link their accounts or upload their track records and do analysis on their performance. And the idea of that site was to find unknown market wizards, you know, unknown market wizards. It wasn't for the book, but it was the idea of the company was to find trading talent. And then I uh, put out a few tweets saying, hey, I'm doing a new book. I'm looking for solo traders unknown who have spectacular performance for at least a decade preferably and if you know if you are one or if you know one let me know and i got i don't know 500 plus responses to that so you know from that i got other traders and i actually had traders i never got to but i had enough material for the book already so plus the pandemic was going and so i cut it cut it at that point but those were the methods i i did to find the traders Love it. So, so we can we can take some questions from the audience if you want. Well, I was no, no, let's get uh, Jordan. Let's get what, Jordan first. If he, uh, he yeah, what something. is your? Uh, you know, I'm sure you've met a ton of characters doing these books um, and been exposed to a lot of ideas. What is your favorite thing that you've learned um, in meeting all of these different people? Well, I, you know, I say favorite. The most useful thing I learned was uh, a line that Bruce Covner used in our interview. And that was the original Market Wizards book, actually. And other traders have said similar things. But and I've said about this line that if if you said, Jack, give your advice to traders, there's just one catch. You could only use 10 words. What 10 words would you use? And that's Bruce Covenant's line. I'm, hopefully I get it exactly right. Uh, but it's basically know where you're going to get out before you get in. That is, if I had to pick out of all the books, all the advice, all you know, all the insights, that to me is the most valuable. I think it probably could be the most valuable for a lot of people. And the reason for that is, I mean, a couple of really critical reasons. One, if you do that, you're really rigorously setting up risk management because you're defining, hey, I expect this to happen, but if the price of the stock or the market or whatever goes to this level, I'm wrong, I'm out. And once you determine that point, you determine your size by how much you're willing to lose. And basically, it takes the emotional strain out of trading because you've already made or most of the emotions in trading come out of a dilemma. You're in a position that's losing money. And we all have the feeling, wow, it's down. I thought it was going to go up, but I still believe in this. And uh, and if I get out now, I'm going to get out right at the bottom. I'm going to get stopped out right at the bottom. And as soon as I get out of market, we all have that feeling. And, you, and people are then find themselves constantly in this dilemma of, do I get out? Uh, do I stay in? And there's a lot of emotional anguish. 
So if you decide where to get out ahead and make it easiest way, you just put in a stop. And, you know, if I put a, if it's not an investment, you know, investments are different, but if it's a trading position, when I enter a position, I'll enter the stop. So, you know, I don't have to think about it. It's going to be done for me. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, what's the one thing you have before you put on a trade that you instantly lose the second you put on the trade? Guys, want to take a shot? The one thing you, the one thing that you lose as soon as you put on a trade. You have it before you put on the trade, and you instantly lose it as soon as you put on the trade. Confidence. <laughs> I was going to say rationality. No. Objectivity. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you sure. can be completely objective. If you're not in the position, you can think about things clearly. Your emotions don't get involved. You can make decisions based upon what you really believe, not your, not what you want. <laughs> you know what you what you think is good. The market's going to do, not what you want the market to do. Once you're in a position, you're thinking in terms of what do I want the market to do. That's a good point. I've heard somebody say, so I don't remember who said it, but the only person that cares about your entry price is you. Yeah. Right? So that's another way to say the same thing. Yeah. You know, I'm laughing, Jack, because some of our our, our uh, viewers today are commenting when you were talking about the second you get in position and it starts going the wrong way. This was literally us the last 24 hours. We went in. Re I went in really big. Not me on my bounce back stocks and like you're speaking it and people can tell they're probably seeing it in my eyes <laughs> that yeah i mean we got in maybe a day early maybe a week early i got in maybe a month early i don't know but i've had a lot of serious thought the last 24 hours of hey you know what i did it i'm, I'm sticking with it i still feel good about the trade we went in on like all the bounce back stops the cruises the airlines like all that we're looking ahead to post vaccine right um, and certainly, a lot of those stocks got crushed again today. So, you know, we'll 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 see where we'll see where it goes. But all these, all everything you're talking about is so real. It's just so real. And by the way, that that thing about knowing how you're going to exit, I love it because that matters for every type of methodology, whether you're a technical, a fundamental, or a social arb trader. Like we exit when we hit information parity. We know exactly when we're going to exit. But so does you know a good technical trader. So does a good fundamental trader, right? Based on valuations or a good value trader. So like, I love that. I love things that make sense across all different you know perspectives. We had a bunch of good answers Great. to the uh, to the hypothetical question there. You lose control. You lose yeah. liquidity. You lose your commission. You lose perspective, objectivity. <laughs> your commission. You guys are great. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, I want to hit no commissions hit and trading anymore. Any yeah, we can um, run back. So if you if you go to dumbmoney.tv slash Jack, you can add to these. Um, I'm going to go ahead and ask the question that we kind of preceded this whole thing with. What is the one trading habit that all stock market wizards have in common? Do you see some kind of commonality between the people who have appeared in or your books? It doesn't even need to be a trading habit, but but something that they some some like common thing that you that all the wizards have in common or a lot of the wizards have in common well the, the one that there's a couple that uh, almost everyone has uh, and, and not i wouldn't really say just stock you know you're trading any market and, and that is just a total respect for risk management and uh and thinking that risk management is the most important thing in their trading success that's a that's kind of almost universal there are a few exceptions or rare exceptions. Um, 
this, you know, really disciplined, you know, uh, you know, Chris, I know you're really disciplined. You know, you, you got an idea, you'll stay up all night and work it out. You know, that's all also goes with the hard work thing, but, but, you know, certain having a discipline to follow a certain process, you know, you don't, you don't kind of like say, Hey, you know, I got an idea. I'm going to take a shot at this. You've actually done the work. You've, you've checked the social media. You've, you know, you've, you've thought, you know, and that's sort of, you've got your approach, but it's true of, of all, all the traders, they've got a process and they're very disciplined sticking with it. I've heard, yeah, I've heard you say that even in a different way. You said that all the, a lot of the wizards all have true deep conviction in their process, right? And that's what enables them to really stick with it over the good and the bad, right? Yeah. Well, confidence in specifically is one of the things that I kind of put out there that is a common common trait in a lot of these traders. I mean, and, and people say, yeah, well, they're confident because they've done so well. Yeah, but it's it's kind of deeper than that. Uh, it runs really both ways. Uh, they they do have, because they've done well, um, they do have just a deep conviction. I, I think of like uh, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, you know, and I was speaking to him and, and he was talking about, uh, you know, he, where he puts his own money. And he said, like, I put like 85% of my own money in my own fund. Why? Because it's the safest place for it. Now, this is from a futures trader, you know, saying the reason he puts 85% of his money in his own fund because it's the safest place for it. Mono Trout's one in one better. He said he puts 95% of his money in his own fund. And, and that just tells you, you know, it just screams confidence. And you feel, you know, these people, you really feel it. Yeah, when I interviewed you, you've got the same. You've got real strong confidence in your approach. And that's called, that's also like a common denominator. Nice. All right. Uh, another one. Any market wizards that shocked you to clarify anyone that had you thinking that can't work, there's no way that strategy works, worked? Yeah, there is one glaring exception and that was a fellow by the name of jimmy baladimus who was a prop trader for first new york um let's just put this in context so this is a prop trader you can't get you guys know this you can't get track records no prop firm is going to give you the track records of their traders however my son got a job as his assistant when he got out of school so you know one day my son says to me hey dad you know you're not gonna you know you won't believe the guy you know working for like and he was, he's kind of known as like one of the best traders at the firm and all that, and a very active trader. But the, the thing is, the, the thing that was just like crazy is, well, there's a contrarian in this book, Jason Shapiro, right? So he's a contrarian. But Baladimus is like, you know, makes him look like conservative. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, he's such a contrarian. He's always fighting a trend, uh, Baladimus. And... So I, um, and it's unbelievable, and he doesn't have, he, he's the one exception to the risk bank. He doesn't have the exit necessarily. And he will do crazy things. Like remember a number of years ago, silver went up to like 50 cents. Who's selling silver when it's 48, 40, 90 cents? Baladimus. He's just going, <laughs> he's going into these markets where they're just like going straight up and he's selling into it, you know. Uh, but the crazy thing is, then he gets out, he doesn't, and then silver went all the way back down, but he doesn't ride the trend down. You know, he goes back to like low 40s, he'll take a profit and 
and he's onto something else. He just it's no more. It's not fun for him anymore because he's no longer fighting it because the trend is now now going oh, down. That and, sounds stressful. Yeah. Well, no, but that's him. And so I, I interviewed him. This I still remember this vividly. It was the end of a quarter. It was a quarter where the stock market. I looked at the charts. You couldn't get three days, you know, where the market didn't make a new high. You know, it was like you get a one day down, two days. It just kept on making new highs. So I go to the end of quarter, and that month in particular, that March, and the market had been up. And the last day of the month, uh, there was something about Libya or something about the Middle East, and the market sold off 2%. But it had been up the entire month. He was break even at that point for the month. Now, how the hell does he do that? He just is constantly taking profits out of the market. So he's short. The market goes down you know, a little bit. He'll grab some of it. He'll go up to new highs. He'll sell it again, you know. So he was so good at harvesting these tiny, you know, small profits that it sort of paid from being wrong about the trend. And I tried to convince him in the interview, um, you know, you could just make, you could do so much better if you did the exact same thing. But instead of fighting the trend, you did it with the trend because he's so good at harvesting these small profits against it that he still makes money even though he's against the trend most times. So um, anyway, he's the most. Uh, He's the guy. He was doing something that I couldn't believe he hadn't blown up 50 times before. I mean, he rode uh, Chipotle. Uh, he rode it all. He was shorting it all the way up. I mean, like, and you're, I don't remember that chart, but it was like just a oh. big, 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 long uptrend. And he started shorting it like, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars below the high. Um, so, but yet he still was one, you know, very profitable. He's, he, just a great trader, but just uh, that's the style. He just has to be fighting. Huh. He's fighting the so, and I say in that chapter, uh, literally, um, first of the first line of the chapters is Jimmy Maldemus breaks all the rules because he does. And my first cha- uh, line of the conclusion is something along the line: Don't try this at home. <laughs> that makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, let's take another question here. Uh, hi, Jack. What is the most impressive trade you've ever audited from a risk to reward standpoint? Is there anything that stands out? <laughs> yeah. There's one guy in his book who literally made 800% on one trade, you know, one day. Uh, so I don't have to think about it. It's that, that trade. And he basically, uh, what had happened is he uh, he'd anticipated that, remember when we had the quantitative easing when it first started? I think when people think back about quantitative easing, uh, insofar as they know what quantitative easing is to begin with, coming out of a financial meltdown, uh, they, they, you know, kind of the central assumption means that that the uh, central bank buys, instead of just trying to, to manage money, uh, the interest rates through short-term securities, uh, they go out longer to longer yield. Uh, so it's kind of new, kind of new at that time. Uh, but what I think is maybe overlooked is that the uh, Reserve, Federal Reserve didn't begin by buying U.S. bonds. Uh, they actually started with mortgage securities. And so the trader, uh, Amrit Sal, basically uh, thought it was just a matter of time that till they started buying bonds. And he thought that when that happened, there would be a really, really big move. So he was kind of ready for it. And when it happened, he put on a just you, tremendously large position. He was out of it 
I, in less than an hour, maybe in minutes, I don't know, because the market went four full bond points instantaneously. But he was ready for that trade. Uh, and the way he trades, he would have been out of it if, if the market didn't react right away. But he was out of it very pretty quickly. He actually got near the high on his exit. He made 800% on that day. Um, and the, the, the kind of most surprising thing about that trade is when I went back and I looked at the chart, the bond market was in a downtrend up to that day. You get this announcement about the uh, you know, um, the Fed starting to buy, the next phase are going to buy U.S. bonds. There's a big spike up, and then the rest of the trend is down again. So he literally picked, caught this huge spike in a downtrend. But because he had anticipated an event, he was totally confident about how the market would respond, was ready for it and put on a maximum position. It's impressive. The, the, uh, this next one's a little tough to read. I'll try to read it. Uh, what one thing have you observed that most successful traders focus on primarily? Is it risk reward, statistics, stomaching risk, trading edge? Like what's the one thing that they tend to focus on uh, the most uh, from successful traders? Preserving capital. Okay. That's what they, you know, that's the most important thing. They all, they're all very conscious of that. Almost all, I should say. It, it, it's fascinating to hear that. And, and it, it's like, this is what I love. Uh, this is what I love about listening to other great traders. It's so different, right? It's so different from the way I think. Um, it's like, like, I think I'm probably one of the few that, that I don't even think about that when I'm, when I have a trade in, I'm thinking about just the gain. I'm willing to take a full loss on it when I'm wrong, you know, but I, yeah. I, I agree with you. A lot of the people yeah. I hear from different, constantly say that. Yeah. You, you fall outside the typical profile in that respect. And Jordan, if you can see these questions too, I don't know if you can see them or not. You can throw them up there, uh, or ask or Dave. You want to throw one out, Dave? Yeah, we can. Uh, let's ask what uh, I saw one a second ago. Well, I don't know which one we want to ask. Let's just ask whichever one got the most votes. What kind of self-image yeah. have most of the very successful traders? Is this the one you just read? Nope, nope. Self-image uh, that successful traders have in common and what differentiates them from an average and or losing trader? Uh, by image, I don't, you know, Self-image, that's a hard one to answer because no way you know, eyes and outside, you know, self-image is kind of an internal thought. Uh, and, um, you know, I... Are we sociopaths, Jack? I think that's what they're asking. <laughs> <laughs> or at least yeah, do they see themselves as. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not really... We get down to personalities. Uh, that's really not a differentiating factor at all because I've interview people just run the gamut on all types of traits you know so you get people who are extremely aggressive you get people who are very shy you get people who are you know happy to you know talk a lot i've had one interview where it remind i used the analogy it was like gary cooper you know yep nope it was a really difficult interview but the guy had had a phenomenal story you know uh, one of these people who started with you know, trading one or two corn contracts, and you know when I when I interviewed him, uh, he was like trading like ten thousand bonds or something like that. A clip, so 
I had to get that in there. I had to get the book, even though he was the most horrible interview. He was the worst interview subject in the world. And it's <laughs> one interview where one chapter where most of the chapters, my narrative rather than the interview is very, very, very difficult to make, take anything out of that interview. So, uh, you know, but I'm just giving you an example of how people differ in their personalities. Uh, so uh, some are some are left, some are right, some are center. You know, you just you get all sorts of uh, all sorts of people, and, and the tra traders are like everybody else when it comes to personal. Well, this question, this next question, you know, I, I read that oh, book, guys, uh, about you know, no Trump's. Uh, I read the the New Yorker article about Trump's book that I read when I was a kid called Art of the Deal. Remember that book, Art oh, yeah. of the Deal? What I thought was so amazing is the author of that book, the co-author, who was a famous author that Trump was able to recruit back then, he tried interviewing Trump for that book, and he could Trump would not he couldn't do it. He couldn't sit down evidently for more than a minute. I'm, this is not yeah. nothing against Trump. He just couldn't he couldn't focus on the interview, and they canceled the book. So the book was canceled. It was done. And then the author came up with this idea. And he called Trump. He's like, what if I don't interview you? What if I just listen into your phone calls? And he ended up listening into Trump's phone calls for some period of time, weeks or months, and wrote that entire book based on just listening into his phone calls. He's like, you don't have to do anything. I'm just going to listen into your calls. There are no questions, no nothing. And he wrote the book based on that. I just, I thought that story was, was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to so, paraphrase the next question. So this one is about philanthropy. Um, you know, a lot of these traders make a lot of money. Um, have you seen, is there a lot of people that are interested in philanthropy after they make money? I, we know that Chris um, has a pretty big giving heart. Um, do you see that as a common um, denominator? I've seen it in quite a number of, uh, of, uh, of the people I interviewed. I'm always way more impressed with that than people who just kind of, you know, blindly spend. But... Quite a lot of them do. Uh, I mean, some of the foremost ones, you think of somebody like Ray Dalio, uh, really, philanthropy is a really big thing. He's got a separate organization to do that. Uh, no, it's really important to him and his wife. Uh, so the people who stand out like that, they're, but they're not, they're, they're not exceptions. I mean, it's true of a, quite, quite a number of people made it big. One of my favorites uh, was uh, um, uh, John Bender, who... Um, Unfortunately, I mean, I didn't realize actually. This is he. Um, it's kind of a. I, I, it's one of the trainers I kept uh, kept kept contact with uh, after after I interviewed, and uh, he was always he had gone to Costa Rica. With his pet project was to he was a brilliant option trader. His pet project was to uh, save the rainforest. So he uh, was buying up thousands and thousands and thousands of acres, uh, you know, in Costa Rica. Uh, and he had a compound, and he had been inviting me to, you know, come come up sometime. And one of my sons was graduated high school, wanted to do a father son trip. So I said, "Hey, how would you like to go to Costa Rica?" You know, and he said, "Sure, that sounds like fun." And uh, so, yes, we ended up we did the Costa Rican thing. Went to say, and we went to, you know, we spent several days with him. Um, so it's kind of interesting. You come to the compound. This was like out of a movie. First of all, the roads there, you could lose a jeep in some of the potholes, and. Uh, <laughs> Then when you get to the, you know, the entry to, you know, the road up, he's got literally, you know, uh, you know, uh, guards with with uh, with automatic, you know, weapons. He had uh, patrols, twenty four hours of poaching, anti poaching patrols, you know, going through the property. So it, it, you know, and then he was situated right on the top. He was building this, uh, 
this amazing circular house on top of the hill. But his 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 big thing was, uh, you know, was that that was his mission. So you definitely get traders that uh, that are motivated, you know, by by philanthropy, and and that's always way more impressive to me. Yeah, and you mentioned Ray Dalio, not just philanthropy, but he's also really into financial education, which I think is really good too. He writes books and things like that, just trying to get people to understand how markets work, how money works. I, I really appreciate that about him. And one of the traders I would mention, and one of the traders in this book was a phenomenal fan of Ray Dalio. And as I tell the story, Ray Dalio had this thing where he was auctioning off lunch for, you know, to have lunch with him for charity. And this trader kind of was, you know, was was bidding for that. And uh, I won't go into the whole story, but, you know, he kind of lost out, but then got to have lunch anyway. <laughs> Another question about uh, motivation and just kind of uh, for, for an early trader, someone who's uh, – who's just, just getting started, what, what is the best advice you would have for someone starting a portfolio for long-term growth? Uh, this is from a 22-year-old beginner. Okay, so based on almost the wording of that question, let me make one critical distinction here. Investment and trading are not the same. Okay, so it depends what we're talking about. If it's like an investment to sort of save for your retirement and you know a person's new trader doesn't yet have skills or a methodology of an edge, there, I would say, particularly if he's young, um, you know, <laughs> even though I don't believe in the Fisher Market Hypothesis, and I've written a lot of, I have a, one of my books, I have a whole chapter on why it's wrong. But for most people, particularly young people, talking about long-term investment now, not trading, you know, going into a low-cost uh, um, equity fund uh, is is probably a good thing to do. Although I would say to time the investments when people are when there are some negative headlines about the stock market, not when everybody's euphoric, but if you basically put your money in a long-term, low-cost equity fund like a like a Vanguard fund, and try to time it so when people are more pessimistic or the market has been down, when you add, that's that's the investment side. If you don't have any skill, you don't have a methodology. You know, on the trading side, the advice is completely different. Uh, first of all, you got to develop a methodology. Starting places, you got to read books just to get ideas, to get some knowledge, and you and what books you'll have to, to differ by people. So some people might be interested in fundamental, some in technical, some like Chris and either. <laughs> so, um, but in any case, you, you've got to get some knowledge, and once you get that, you can experiment, like trying to develop a method, watching the market, try different things, do paper trading first. It's not the same, I know, because the motions aren't there. But if you can't make money paper trading, you're certainly not going to make it for real money. And once you get to the point where you feel you've got some methodology and you think you do have a little bit of an edge, uh, take a amount, take some money, but not enough that will do damage if you lose it. And uh, and try try your hand at it. Decide ahead of time when you open an account how much money you're willing to lose. Uh, let's say, I mean, I'm going to use a round number here. There'll be it's way too much for some people, way too little for others. Let's say it's $100,000, and that's how much you have liquid that you can put into it, to a trading account, uh, and say that you think you can lose 25 and it won't drastically affect your life, but if you saw in that, it's going to be it's going to be impactful. So then make a self-commitment. Okay, I'm, I've got this method. I've developed it. I think it works. 
I've got a method, you know, I'm going to use money management. But if I end up, my account equity goes down to 75, the day goes down to 75, I'm going to liquidate everything, go back to the drawing board, think about what I got right and wrong, try to develop something, you know, that might work better. And so that's my basic advice, because most people will lose in their first uh, foray. And Chris was no exception there. <laughs> and, and usually more than once. So you might as well get your educational markets losing less money. And the last thing anybody should do is risk all their whole trading stake at one time. That That is the worst mistake you can make. And one that Chris is constantly uh, considered doing, putting in his entire investment portfolio into one crazy stock play. <laughs> oh, oh, Chris. Uh, so I've got one. What markets do you see traders have the most success in, just from what you've seen? Uh, no answer there, because I've interviewed people that do you know, some you know, pure equity traders, some pure FX traders, pure futures traders, comp, you know, pure, pure stock traders, uh, option traders. So there, you know, it's whatever whatever market kind of fits for that person, you know. So it's not uh, it, it really varies, and some people are only comfortable being long. Although the traders I interview are almost terribly long short, but there are rare exceptions, like like Jeff Newman in this book uh, never goes short a stock, uh, but his track record looks drastically different than a long only equity manager. So, Jack, related question. Among those wizards, the market wizards, what's their educational background? Do you see more successful traders with finance backgrounds or psychology, math, physics, or engineering? Uh, well, I've been interviewing people, as you mentioned, over three decades. I guess if you did it today, maybe you'd find more quant-oriented uh, people. But among the people I've interviewed, they have literally ranged from, well, one fellow in this book, uh, High school, finished high school, and by his own admission, with not very good grades, uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> just finished it. And that's it. And and in Czechos, you know, Czech Republic, not even you know, you know. So uh, that was the extent of his education. On the other hand, I go to the other extreme. You have people like uh, like Thorpe, uh, who uh, who was going, who's writing his treatise for a PhD uh, in physics, decided he didn't know enough math. Started so taking some graduate math courses, got his PhD in math, never finished his thesis of physics. So technically, he doesn't have the PhD in physics. But you go, that's the gamut. I mean, you know, and, and so you got people with limited education to like just the extreme, the hardest disciplines, PhDs. So uh, it, it, like I say, these things vary. And, and it is surprising because you would think that, um, that there would be more of a bias to people having PhDs in math or that type of thing. Um, it, it's useful, very useful for some types of approaches, but it's certainly not the norm. Oh, I got one other. That reminds me, because this is a good story. Michael Marcus, who is one of the great traders uh, of all time, for context for your listeners, um, took a $30,000 account at, at Commodities Corp, which is a prop shop at the time, and then May turned it into 80 million and they were pulling 20% a year out of his profits. To, wow. Yeah. And so did that in about a dozen years. So just extraordinary trader. He was a psychology major, by the way. And so Michael went to interview Commodities Corp. Commodities Corp was founded by uh, a quant PhD, um, 
who wrote, he said, <laughs> I love this line, Michael said, the, the founder of, of Commodities Corp had um, wrote this book and, and Michael's line was, it was so complicated, it was so complicated, you couldn't understand the cover, you know, and uh, so anyway, Michael goes to it and uh, by the way, Paul Samuelson was one of the advisors to the early commodity scope. And that was, those are the type of people, they were all, they were all like PhD, brilliant, you know, uh, quants. And so Michael goes in to interview and, uh, and somebody said, well, after he went out, you know, somebody said, well, what does he do? Well, he only trades. And they thought that was hysterical. You know, Michael, he was, you know, had none of this quant stuff. He was just, you know, a brilliant uh, trader, just a strongly intuitive trader. Jack, this is a question I, I, I think is I think is a really good one. Um, and I, I bet this person who asked the question probably is reading a lot of Nassim Taleb books. Um, hi, how do we know the market wizards, in quotes, aren't just the super lucky investors from a large pool of people where the general performance is average? That's, that's a really great question and one that I, earlier in my investing career, I thought about constantly, I was constantly questioning my own skill or luck, right? Like, am I just, am I just, do I just fall outside? Cause that's something I thought about. It took me 10 years before I finally had conviction that that wasn't, that my success wasn't just an anomaly out of a pool. So like, what do you think about that? Okay. So that's a good question for sure. And I would say it's, um, it's a variation of the Shakespearean monkey uh, argument, which is if you have enough monkeys hitting keyboards randomly, one of them will eventually type Hamlet. And that's, that's true, you know, but what remains unanswered is how many monkeys do you need to do that? So, uh, and I would argue, and I, you know, I haven't done the calculation, but probably more monkeys that can fill the, you know, uh, the visible universe. Uh, so it comes down to trading. You, I've interviewed people whose records are just impossible, you know, from a probability standpoint. I'm going to use one here, Ed Thorpe, who I mentioned before. Uh, so he had two funds, and we'll just talk about the first one. The first one ran for 19 years. 19 years, he had, he had every every month was a winning month except for three. So three losing months in 19 years. <laughs> losing months were all less than 1%. So it's almost break even. Now, what I did is I did a simple binomial distribution calculation. And I assumed that the wins were as likely as the losses, uh, which is actually very conservative because his wins were larger. So the probability is even greater than what I'm going to state. But even if you make that conservative assumption, the probability of him being up every month in 19 years with those three exceptions is, and um, the number is 10 to the, you know, such a large number, it's hard to conceive. So when I wrote the book about him, I wanted to get an analogy that people could kind of get a, ta a tangible feel of what that meant. So his track record probability is smaller, smaller, in fact, a lot smaller than the probability of picking one atom in mass of the earth, not the surface, the entire <laughs> and then randomly picking another atom and hitting the same atom. Now, that probability is higher than the probability of Thorpe's record if it was based on luck. So that's my <laughs> That says it. That says it all. It's good. 
Speaking of, um, so um, have you kept up with the performance of your original Market Wizards? And uh, they're saying that I know most have retired, but I'm curious if they've continued to generate exceptional returns since being featured in your books. Yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't. And um, of course, you know, um, the, the original Market Wizards was over 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, at that time, even, you know, some of the people were, were no older even at that point. So um, I, I haven't kept up. Um, in, in a couple of cases, I might know. I mean, I know people like, like Druckenmiller went on to continue to just generate his near 30% the year average return for his entire career. I'm, I mean, I know certain isolated, which was like 30 years, you know, 30 years, 30% compound. So I know, I know isolated instances. Uh, but I don't know, um, you know, overall, I lost complete touch with a lot of traders and, uh, and, uh, you know, a number of them were pretty, didn't run funds. They were private. So, um, I wouldn't have access to their track records. And the number, I should also say a number of them, uh, went on to form larger hedge funds like Covenor and Paul Tudor Jones. And they went from managing, you know, from, trading 50 or 100 million to, to having firms who are managing 20 billion. And when you get into that type of giant type of uh, asset management, you just can't keep, you know, no way. I mean, Caxton, which is uh, Covenant's firm, uh, I don't know offhand what the track record is for the other, but I'm sure it's, it's quite good. I mean, they had the tons of money, they raised tons of money. Uh, but when I interviewed, when I interviewed Covenant, he had, uh, I still remember, I think the number was 88% in the prior 10 years, average annual return. Now, I'm sure he, there's no way you can do that if you're managing, you have a fund, you know, uh, managing 10 or 20 billion. So you almost, by definition, have to, to, to have much lower returns. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, what, 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 I don't think like this, but it's a pretty high rank question. What, what is a good win-loss ratio in terms of the dollar amount won divided by the dollar amount loss? Secondly, what's a good win percentage? Is that uh, something you think about or not? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm happy someone asked that question. Okay, so here it goes. I'm, I'm not going to hedge at all. I don't hedge at anything. Uh, the most useless or maybe detrimental statistic, performance statistic, is the percentage of winning trades. If you use a percentage of winning trades, do yourself a favor and throw it out. It, it, in fact, I'll, and I'll explain it a little bit more. One of the traders in this book, uh, in fact, it was Admiral Sal, I believe it was, we talked about earlier. Uh, I asked him this question. I said, well, he, he worked originally in a prop shop, and even now he still trades among other traders, but particularly in those earlier years. And I said, you know, you've seen a lot of traders. What, what, what? You know, I asked them both what characterized the, the, the winning traders and what characterized the losing traders. Well, the first thing he said about the losing traders was that they, what he noticed was the traders who strive most for consistency, another word for, you know, high percentage of winning trades, are the ones who usually failed, which is counterintuitive because, <laughs> like, hey, consistency sounds really good. Uh, Brandt had a line uh, in his interview, he said, the market is not an annuity. Now, with those answers have in common is the implied there uh, is that the markets do not work on a clock. They don't, whatever your methodology is, the market is not going to throw out trade opportunities that fit your 
methodology on some sort of schedule. And the markets don't care that you want to make money every month. And so you'll have times where you might get multiple good opportunities in one month. And Chris, you said it in our interview, you might get periods where there's months and there's really not good, you know, good opportunity. And you can try to make, you know, if you try to force consistency, what will happen is you'll be taking suboptimal trades and making an excuse for them. So, yeah, I know this is not quite my my methodology. And yeah, I don't think it's a high probability, but I think it's better than 50-50 and there's nothing else to do, so I'll do it. So it's those type of things that get in the way and in the end end up hurting performance. It also takes your focus off of getting the good trades. So you might take these suboptimal trades, lose money, and uh, as as uh, Michael Platt said in, in our interview, that's from Mark Wizards, it's like you're standing there, uh, you know, and he didn't mean literally killing elephants, so I don't want your audience to get the wrong idea. But it's just a metaphor. He says it's like you're standing there um, and, uh, you know, with a rifle hunting elephants, and uh, you're so upset about it, you're so, you get so distracted with the losing trade that was ne- unnecessary that an elephant walks right past you and you don't see it. You miss it. So uh, that's, it's again, it's a metaphor. So um, that's what's wrong with consistency uh, or high percent returns. Now, the statistic that does make sense is not the percent of, of winning trades, because that's only half the equation. It's not what the percent of winning trades are. It's what the percent of winning trades are times the average win divided by the percentage of losing trades times the average loss. That's what's important. And yes, that number, you want that number certainly to be over one, you know, well, over, well if it's one, then you're break even. But the higher over one, that is the better. And um, and that's a number to pay that you that is 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 valuable. But percentage of winning trades does more harm than good if you look at that. By the way, guys, community, we're just picking questions at random now because we want some of the newer people, uh, newer questions to pop up. And, you know, if we go by the most voted to least voted, we're just going to have the questions I've been sitting on there the longest. So I don't know, Jordan, do you, do you have any you think are interesting? Want to just pluck one out? Um, and I actually have. Yeah, so here's one. Here's a good one. So, how long does it take um, traders? And obviously, you're not with them all the time, but like, you know, just interviewing them, how long has it taken them to get where they are to like refine what they're doing? So, how long does it take a, a trader to refine their craft? Yeah, longer than most people think. So, um, I guess a typical answer, I, I mean, Peter Brandt and Nardu, I think he mentioned people People should allow at least three to five years. Uh, you take some other traders like this fellow Camillo. Um, <laughs> I think it took him a lot longer than that. Yeah. yeah. So, but the, the answer is usually longer than you think. Uh, related to that, uh, would you say most traders start out with a job or do it full time? And then they say, curious to know about dumb money guys. So, well, guys, you know that we've been working our whole life. We didn't, this is a very new thing for us not to have jobs. So <laughs> for us, we started with jobs. Jack, do you know from your other market? Was uh, it varies because some, you know, some of these traders, um, uh, you know, people like Marcus and Governor basically were hired, you know, and also in this book, uh, you know, uh, Sal and Dhaliwal uh, and Barge, a number of traders, they were hired as prop traders. And uh, and so they never did anything else, and it may have taken them a couple of years till they really got the groove. But but they were traders all along. 
Uh, and then you have people who had, you know, maybe more commonly people had other jobs and then eventually went into, you know, trading once they developed something. Uh, one on that subject, one of the traders and name of the chapter um, is the one systematic trader in the book. And his advice and the name of the chapter is don't quit your day, day job. Useful advice for your audience. So let me take this a little bit further, explain that. So what people forget, well, first of all, a number of things. It's, it's very difficult to make money trading if you have to make money. So, yeah. you know, you really yeah. ramp up, you really ramp up the difficulty uh, if, if you depend on making money um, because then you will do, you, you know, I can, I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, tangent upon tangent, but I'll get back to the don't quit your day job. Uh, but like the perfect example that is Stanley Druckenmiller, literally one of the greatest traders of, you know, of our generation. And uh, Druckenmiller went off to start his own hedge fund. And he had one major account <clears throat> that he was advising and it was giving him, paying him for this advice. He was getting like $10,000 a month and that kind of paid to keep the doors open. He didn't have that much money when he started the hedge fund. Something happened at the end of was some sort of, this firm that he was advising got into some sort of top trouble or, or, or financial squeeze. I don't remember the exact thing, but they had to cut his consulting thing. So he was now in a situation that his overhead was greater than the money he was making as a manager. And if the fund was going to survive, he had to, you know, was, he couldn't do it, you know, couldn't happen unless he did something. So at that time, he was very, very, he thought that if and we're talking now, this is before your listeners, you know, way before most of your listeners' time, I'm sure you got a young audience. But back in the uh, late 70s, when we had high inflation, interest rates went crazy. And at the end of the decade, I think you got like 21% uh, T-bill rates, right? Uh, and so you had these wild, and the bond market was like, the yield was like 14%. So he, at that point in time, thought that we were seeing a major panic sell-off. We were forming a major bottom, that there was going to be a very long-term bull market. And in fact, the bull market that, that did form in the early 80s uh, is, you know, it may be a top now, but it went like uh, 40 years, really. So it was a phenomenal call. He took all the money, all his risk capital, bought euro dollars. Um, he missed the exact bottom of the market by like literally one week. So he missed the bottom of a 40-year bull market by one week. But because he had to make money, he you know got like he got stopped. He you know got stopped. He couldn't hold the book. He couldn't hold the position. He got stopped out. Oh. So even though it was like one of the most it was like one of the best trades anybody could ever have made in markets. And he ended up losing because he had to make money. So it's very important you don't put yourself in a position where you have to make money. Um, so, uh, and what people forget also, going back to the stage job thing, is that it's not enough to just make money. You know, you're always paying taxes on what you make. So even if you're successful, money's coming out of taxes, you're paying money to live. So this trader, Marston Parker, had sort of cumulatively made like about five million, right? And he hits a period where like two years where he not only doesn't make money, but he's actually down a bit, down from this high at least, but he's still ahead like five, he still has pulled five million out of the market. However, because he stopped making money, you know, that five million has been pulled out. He's used for very, you know, to pay, you know, for 
for his living expenses for 20 years, uh, well, at that time, maybe 15 years, and the taxes. And, and so even, even though he did very well, he came, he actually quit trading. He had to give up trading because he said, I can't do this. You know, I can't do this anymore. Uh, then about three months later, he started trading and did very well again. But he almost got knocked out of trading. So uh, that's why one of his lines of advice is don't quit your day job. Yeah, be best to not be relying on your trading because you can just trade more purely on trading if you're not relying on that to live. And I think a related question, th this is one I think answers itself. But I think it's such an important question I've heard you talk about before. Are there well-known edges or do you have to create your own unknown edge? And I think what they're talking about is should are, should you just kind of jump on board with someone else's methodology or do you have to create your own or is there a hybrid? Like how should they be thinking about this? Yeah, so there are no well-known edges because if they were well-known and if they fulfill both those conditions of being well-known and an edge, by definition, they would disappear. You know, so... Uh, the, you know, those things may happen periodically, and they do, they all disappear. So yeah. by definition, they they're it's impossible for a well-known edge to to continue to exist. Yeah. So you're pretty sure that it doesn't exist. One thing that happens is that um, people, what's why I call the well-chosen example. So uh, people will read a book. Let's say it's a let's say it's a chart analysis book, and the author will show them. Hey, here's what you do. You got this type of breakout, and you go long in the market, and and they, you know, every example they see it works brilliantly. Sure, because they've chosen the examples. Uh, <laughs> you're seeing a very, very biased sample. So the first thing is you got to be when you see other, you know, when you see stuff stuff in books or articles or anything like that. Keep in mind that the example is probably not representative, and it mis misleads people to believe edges with it or not so in fact this is i still remember this is again a personal story so a point in my career i was developing systems uh, i was working for a partner who did the programming and uh, i read an article in, in a magazine and it showed this this um it was a simple trend following thing right and it showed it for the swiss franc and it just was like this as an example and it wasn't much different than a very very basic uh but it had like it combined two different, you know, like a short-term moving average, a long-term moving average. And I kind of, I never used very short-term moving averages, but um, I knew the long-term moving average worked, but it's not spectacularly like this article. So I had my partner kind of run the system. And uh, and whereas the, the article was showing like, you know, profits in every year, and I forget what the exact percent return was, we ran the system on all on our portfolio markets and no surprise, the only market that did extraordinarily well was the Swiss franc using the system. You know, and you had not only that, it was actually a losing system because the one thing that I that I, when you applied it to a whole portfolio, because the one thing I hadn't tried because I didn't think it would work, a short-term moving average, indeed was a losing thing. Except for this particular market, it worked very well. So where, where there seem to be edges from the stuff you see, it's only because it's being promoted. Uh, and it's not representative. Uh, so, and the other part of that question is critical, is as far as an edge goes, any real edge, it's got to be one that you develop yourself. You're not, you're not going to get it from somewhere else. Yeah, at least, at least you got to put your own spin on someone else's methodology to make it slightly yourself. Or what's so great about social arbitrating is everything's interpretable. 
So we could be looking at the same thing, and you'll probably have a slightly different interpretation than me, which is why we love talking about it on Dumb Money, because we're never going to be doing the same thing. Dave, we got to talk about, so many people are asking about crypto. I mean, this is this is our life, Jack. Like, we run the show about equities, and we, we, we cannot escape crypto. So I, we got to ask a question. Have you come across any um, crypto traders? Would you consider doing a book on the future, in the future, about crypto traders that are doing really well? I mean, it, is it even mature enough where you can look at these guys, or is it too young a market? Uh, is it something you would consider? Have you seen anything like in that anyone in that world's of interest? Well, I, I definitely didn't seek out crypto traders. As you say, it's a pretty new market. It's a, it's a tradable market. But uh, there are, you know, there are, this, this book that you're in, a couple of traders in there like uh, Jeff Newman and Peter Brandt do trade cryptos. And Peter Brandt, you know, crypto is just another chart, right? So it's like, yep. uh, yeah, it's just like, doesn't make a difference if it's, uh, you know, if it's gold or it's crypto or if there's a liquid market in, in jelly beans. I don't know. You know, it doesn't, it's just a chart that he's working on. So it's not uh, that's that's one element of it. Uh, so somebody like Jeff Newman has done well, you know, not trading crypto, but it's only an adjunct. It's just another thing to trade. Uh, I haven't interviewed any pure crypto traders. I'm not excited about doing it because it's so narrow. Uh, it's like one type of thing. Um, and, you know, I it's just not something that I have to be interested in it as a as a topic, it's like why uh, why don't I want to do a, a book on high frequency trading? Well, first of all, they wouldn't tell you the exact formulas anyway, but it wouldn't be. I don't think it would be interesting. So uh, I I try to get I try to interview people not only who have useful trading lessons, but where the 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 story of how they trade is interesting. I'll rephrase this question. What's a so you've done um, institutional guys and you've done. You know these loan uh, investors. What what's the biggest difference that you see between the two? Uh, the yeah, I, I really is well. It goes again back to personality. So some people, you know, are very comfortable managing money, and other people find that it gets in the way. So you know that's that's one difference. Uh, but overall, I if you just went by the trading style and. Not really drastically different, other than again the question we talked about earlier, which is size. If the, if, the, if it's a hedge fund that's managing a lot of money, you know certain certain approaches no longer can be used, and I, or in certain markets can't be traded. I remember Kovner telling me like, uh, you know, um, it almost doesn't like he liked the, he did he always did it very well in trading coffee as a very volatile market. He says, but you know why bother because. The size I have to keep my position to is so small that it barely has an impact on the portfolio. So you you get certain uh, differences that are dictated by their size. Yeah. It's not so much that their approaches are different or, the, or their traits are different. Hey, Dave, I think we've got to wrap up. There's at least one question I want to ask as we're wrapping up because we've had an hour of Jack's time. And I don't know if there's another place, by the way, Jack. We have so many questions. It's unbelievable how much interest there is. Uh, but I, I, I just saw a question. Why should a young trader buy this book? And I think that's a great way to kind of wrap it up. Uh, you know, Unknown Market Wizards. What, why, why should they? Unknown Market Wizards, you can buy it on Amazon, obviously. Uh, you can. It sounds like you have an audio version. Um, it's on Audible. Kindle, all that yeah. good stuff. Why should they buy Why should a young trader buy this book versus another? Sure. Well, first of all, let me tell you why you shouldn't buy it. And this may apply to a number of uh, listeners. 
if you're looking for a book that's going to give you a recipe of uh, how to make 100% of the year uh, using two hours a week, this <laughs> is not the book for you. You won't find anything remotely like that in there. But what you'll get is advice from people who've done phenomenally well. And like anything, if you want to learn something, two ways to learn something. One, find people or read what pe you know, people who've done very well uh, have to say. And the other is find people who do it very poorly and you know do the opposite. So, so I think this book is valuable in showing you how people who've succeeded you know, exceptionally well in the markets, how they think, what they've done, and so forth. But it won't give you a recipe. Hey, you know, buy the stock market every Tuesday following a, a high volume day or something like that. That's not. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, for all of y'all that did not get your questions answered, Jack is on Twitter. Jack, Sh I think it's just at Jack Schwager. Is that That's right, it, Jack? Yeah. Yep. So try pinging. Yeah, at Jack Schwager. Ping him on Twitter. You know, contact them with your questions and this them. What do you think, Dave? I mean. No, it's fantastic. Uh, and I just actually wanted to ask one more question from the audience. Yeah. that kind of relates to that because uh, the question is for the millennials, who people who are just getting into this, looking for advice. They're just wondering if um, if you've seen any other fellow millennials who are making waves in the market right now. Are there, what is the youngest trader that has been super successful that you've come across? Well, you know, it's it's hard for me to get people who are extremely young because I'm looking for track records at least ten years, uh, you know, long. So unless I find a trader who started twelve years old, <laughs> the exceptionally well, I'm not going to have a very young trader. But I do have traders in this book that are quite you know relatively young. Uh, um, you know, may have started uh, started at out of college, right? So started out of college, anywhere from uh, don't. I don't know, nine, year, nine years ago, maybe it's the youngest, uh, to 15, 20 years ago. So not super young, but they did some, but the number of traders started young. They started, many traders in this in this book did start right out of college. You know, so in that respect, um, there are traders who were young when they were trading. I just have to wait till they had at least a 10-year track record. Yeah. And by the way, guys, first I 10 have years was, was nothing uh, remarkable. <laughs> No, they, no. I, I, I'll give some. I'll give you some information that I, I think I mentioned to Jack privately, but and I can't say who it is because I promised I wouldn't say who it was. But one of the other market wizards, um, uh, one of the newer market wizards, reached out to me as part of the competition we we're running for kind of the best 2020 track record, and wow, I, I, I just he doesn't want he wants to stay discreet, and I appreciate that. Um, he, all, you know, we're giving away a lot of money. He, he basically said that if he's the winner to donate the money to charity, which I really appreciate and respect. Um, but I'll tell you this, this person who's in your book, Jack, he has outperformed me this year, like blow, blew my mind how well this trader has done this. And this is a trader that's done exceptionally well over the past decade. And I'm just telling you, there's some talented people in this book so like yeah i mean obviously guys i already said it jack you wrote in one chapter what it might take me a hundred youtube shows to express and you did it so eloquently you spent a day and a half interviewing me in person over the phone and man in one 35 page chapter you basically summed up everything we do at dumb money 
It's so beautiful and wonderful. And I definitely think everybody should read this book if you want to experience that. But there's like another dozen people in this book that have done insanely things, insane things, just as impressive. Uh, so, you know, highly recommend it. Jack, thank you for coming hey, on our show. Jordan, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. And should we, are we going to wrap it up here? Yeah, let's wrap it up. I mean, that we I think I think Jack said it all. This has been amazing. We'll we'll be back tomorrow, guys. We will. So right? make sure before you go, do hit the like button. It really does help out the YouTube Please. algorithm. Subscribe. Hit the bell if you haven't done that. You'll know when we're on that way. Listen to our podcast, Jack. I don't know if you have a podcast. We did have a lot of questions saying, "Where else can we get more from this guy?" <laughs> I don't do. Any, I, I'm just guest. I'm a guest on a lot of podcasts, but I don't have my own. Follow his Twitter. Follow Definitely. Jack. The Market Wizards has a Twitter too. But Jack does something really cool on his on the Market Wizards Twitter, I think, or your Twitter. No, it's your Twitter, I think. Yeah. Every single day he tweets out a quote from the book, and he has like a couple hundred of these quotes. So every day you get a new quote from the book. I think that's super cool. I so like this is just that on that note, you I only have one quote for you. And it's not because you didn't have a lot of things to say, but you were the one trader that just was not Twitter friendly. I couldn't. No, it's, I know that. Uh, Listen, trust I, me. I know that. No. I, I'm so long-winded. He, he doesn't. just couldn't get, like, somebody like Grant was, like, very Twitter quoted. He just has these lines that are just standalone. In your case, it, you need the anecdote. You, this line is very high. So I was able to pull out only one thing that was within Twitter's character limit but these are great quotes guys so just follow jack on twitter if you want more of that stuff chris, and tweet chris is very difficult to uh, contain difficult to edit <laughs> difficult to make any anything we do less than an hour long but that's going to wrap it up we are just over an hour now thanks so much for watching we are dumb money we will see you again tomorrow hmm.